This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. I received some feedback from yesterday's post, Good Questions which make me realize that many people reading this are still trapped in the chains of legalistic works, righteous faith, and asceticism. And I wanted to continue the thought from yesterday. I think the problem is that it's the way in which we've been falsely taught to read our Bibles. Snip a verse here, snip a verse there, combine them, and make a new Bible with a new meaning. Having been taught under arguably one of the most legalistic sects of the message of the hour, I find that the book of Hebrews is filled with very profound statements. It's actually a refreshing change, living my life by the words of the Apostle Paul. And the book of Hebrews is a book that I personally can relate to. Because of the power in the statements of this book, you'll find several single verses that you're familiar with repeated with solidly to back statements during sermons that sometimes have very little to do with the meaning behind those words. And you'll even find some entire chapters that you're familiar with. Hebrews is a well-studied book by many people. The words are powerful. It was a message of faith to the Jews, those once bound by the Mosaic Law. And the writing is a very clear and concise message that describes Christ as our new high priest. No longer were the children of God to look to a man as their spiritual leader. The book of Hebrews is different than some of the other letters to the church. The Apostle Paul typically wrote his letters with a salutation, and the title line to the Hebrews is not found in some of the earliest manuscripts. While many still believe that Paul wrote this letter to the Hebrews, there's a growing understanding that this may not be the case. It's very possible that this is one of Paul's sermons, transcribed by Luke, and then spread to the the good news that Christ was our new high priest to the early church. As the early church grew, lifting up leaders into excessive power, it was a common problem just like it is today. The people were so accustomed to having high priests, even those that were involved with pagan worship. They had grown with the tradition that serving gods through the filter of men, 
and it felt comforting to lift men into great power and spiritual authority. And as we have all experienced at one time or another, having a physical face to associate with God makes God seem more alive and real to us. But this was not the way that God intended after his work on the cross. The book of Hebrews is not a book at all. Long before printing presses and cover bindings, these letters were written on scrolls. They were not indexed with chapters, not counted as lines or verses. The book of Hebrews was really the scroll of Hebrews, a single letter written to the early church to describe our new high priest. And while the words are very powerful, so much that they are quoted in several sermons, you'll find that they are not nearly so powerful as when they are read together as they were intended. A single letter, one single letter to the church. This scroll addresses many issues that are found in churches today. When separated, these chapters do not relay the same instruction to the church. But when combined, you'll find that many churches today, especially cult churches, have fallen into grave error. The Jews were not the only ones that practiced asceticism or the idea that you can become more holy by the pleasurable things that you desire but avoid for your God. Pagan worship infiltrated the early church to create Gnosticism. Gnosis was the idea that the material world was created by the evil forces, Satan's Eden. To those who practiced Gnosticism, they believed that they had spiritual enlightenment by knowing the great mysteries and therefore abstained from any sort of pleasure that this world had to offer. But the Jews were bound by the Mosaic Law. This law not only created similar works righteous faith, but it also came with severe punishment for failure. The children of Israel were very familiar with the, the worship of Baal. Living in Egypt, walking side by side with the Egyptians, involved with pyramid worship of the sun god, Ra, and Osiris, and Isis, and more, they were familiar with Egyptian custom, and it affected them to the point of their own downfall. When Moses returned from the mountain, having met God face to face, the people were not satisfied to simply believe God for their protection and salvation. Following the example of Egyptian worship, the children of Israel begged Moses to go back up the mountain and ask God what they must do, they must do, to secure protection and salvation. Moses returned with the law. Throughout the Old Testament, it describes how men and women tried to save themselves. A righteous man would be born, realize the people had fallen into idolatry, tear down the idols that were worshipped, and God would bless him. But over time, even the righteous man would fall. It sounds very simple to us. Don't worship those wooden or stone things over there. They aren't gods. But it wasn't that easy. In a spiritual sense, we have the same exact thing today. And future generations will rise looking back at us and they'll ask themselves, why do they worship events in history? Why do they think that following a man has anything to do with their salvation? Didn't they read the book of Hebrews? The children of Israel had the same exact problem. 
Moses was their spiritual leader. He didn't have photographs that looked like clouds or halos, but he was the great one that spoke directly to God. He brought the Mosaic Law, the code that they lived by. Moses was the closest thing to God, and he was their mediator between God and man. The book of Hebrews breaks them from falling into the worship of a man, starting in the third chapter. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus an apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him that appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has than the honor of the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify of the thing testify of the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are listen to this we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope that's Hebrews 3 works were necessary the Mosaic law was necessary. Any house that is built is built by works. If you do not labor, your lumber and your brick will lay in stacks never assembled. Chapter 4 of Hebrews assures the people that their work was not in vain. Their devotion towards building the house, the body of Christ, it had value. But at some point you rest in your labor. When you build a house for your family, Long hours are spent in the hot sun laboring to make the walls and the roof. And once the foundation is set, the walls are raised and the roof is covered, the labor does not stop there. The inside must be finished and the house must be made livable. It's a tremendous undertaking to construct a house. But when you are finished, you rest. You don't finish the house and then continually labor. There's nothing left to do. You enjoy the house. Chapter 4 reminds us that this rest is deserved. And it's not considered unholy to rest from works righteous faith that the Jews once knew. This chapter reminds us that the people reminds the people that on the seventh day of building the earth, God rested. And rest is very important. The chapter also reminds us that the work was already finished before the foundation of the world, yet God rested. But this part of the chapter is very important to understand. In works righteous faith, you must save yourself. If you try to uphold part of the Mosaic Law and do not uphold the rest of the Mosaic Law, then you deserve the over 300 punishments of that law. The Mosaic Law came with a reward of 300 blessings if the people kept all of the law, and 300 curses if the people failed any part of that law. I hear the pastors today quoting the Mosaic Law in order to enforce godliness over worldliness, yet none of them will stone their children if they disobey. None of them will wash their hands in brass basins before they enter the church. There are more laws that they breach 
then they preach. Chapter 4 begs us to enter God's rest from works righteous faith. It was not for Joshua's time. Joshua was building the house. It was not for the people before them that this letter was intended to. It was for here. It was for now. It was Christ. And those that did not enter it, those that remained in works righteous faith, will fall. Fall to the same disobedience that is described in the Old Testament. It says this in Hebrews 4, For if Joshua had been given rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's house, enters God's rest, has rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. But at the very end of this chapter, it sets up the very foundation for the entire scroll of Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one that in every respect has been tempted just as we are, and yet he's without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, and that we may find grace in the time of need. This thought is continued in chapter 5, describing how Christ is now our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It tells us how the high priest offered small sacrifices on our behalf but Christ bore the pain on our behalf. He paid the penalty, and Christ became the sacrifice. It's funny because in chapter 5, the writer realizes that people will one day stop reading this scroll in its entirety. It's almost as if the writer can peer into the future, how they will ignore this new high priest so that they can set up super apostles or prophets or seven church age messengers. The writer gives this warning. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have became dull of hearing. For though this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment, knowing good from evil, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, not guessing names on a prayer card, spiritual discernment, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go into maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That's Hebrews 6. And look what we have today. Super apostles, prophets, and telling us that they have a better way. You baptize this way, you must not believe that there is an eternal hell. Hebrews chapter 
5 through 6, condemns this. The end of chapter 6 reminds us of God's everlasting covenant with Abraham and denies this little bride theology that the Gnostics were spreading. This promise was not for a small number that could be counted. God's promise was to Abraham, and it was a promise that his people would be like the sands of the sea. It says this in chapter 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waiting, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes find an oath that is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. We might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Remember, they weren't allowed to do this. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Not just until some seventh church age. A high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is where it starts getting good. After establishing that we do not need men as spiritual leaders, and after establishing that Christ is our new high priest, after establishing that the people finally deserved rest, then the writer starts to build our confidence so that we will still have salvation in our rest from works righteous faith, our rest from it. The old covenant law had failed. It was useless towards salvation. And time after time in the Old Testament, we have examples of its failure. The people still sinned, and the high priest offered sacrifice to their continual sin. Blood was required. But listen to this. This is continuing in chapter 7. For on the one hand, a former, not current, a former commandment, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we may draw near to God. And it was not without oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest by the oath of the one who said this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood, listen to this, permanently, not till some seventh church age, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost by those who draw near to God through him, since he is always alive to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. For on his own, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all, one time, when he offered up himself. The scroll continues, describing the new covenant and comparing it to the weakness of the old covenant. But starting in chapter 10, we find that the fundamental element that is described is missing in many churches today, especially those that practice works, right, righteousness, and Christianity. The Pentecostal movement, it taught preachers to break down their congregations in order to increase the numbers at altar calls. The sermons are designed to point fingers at every single person possible, every single sin possible in every member of their congregations that they could have possibly committed during the course of the entire week. Then, pretending to wipe a little tear from their eye with some starched handkerchief, they say this, Now if you have sin in your lives, don't let this day pass. What if this is your last day on earth? What if you get in an automobile accident on your way home? What if you suddenly fall from a heart attack? Don't let this be your last day without repenting in front of me. <laughs> Boo. In other words, don't trust in your salvation. Don't trust in the work that Christ did on the cross for you. Don't accept that by faith. Accept this time right now as the ticket to your salvation. <clears throat> but starting in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer does the exact opposite. The faith of the church is built up. Listen to these powerful words. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a greater priest over the house of God, let us draw new, near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. It doesn't say that our hearts are without sin. It says sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up. Listen to that. Let us consider how to stir one, or one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, those people who think they should stay home from church, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Immediately after this paragraph, there is a single verse that is snipped out of context misused and abused, and all in the name of Pentecost. To this day, even after the Pentecostal movement has fizzled out, preachers around the world preach this one single verse into the ground, not realizing just how badly they have taken it out of context. For if we go on sinning de deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But read the entire chapter in context. Read the chapters before it. Read the chapters after it. 
at the end of that very same chapter, the writer describes how we are not under that same category. And then he goes on further afterwards to describe how faith in Jesus Christ is the key to your salvation, not works. He says this, it says at the very end of Hebrews 10, but we are not of those. <laughs> Let me repeat, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he goes on about the faith. After describing the many examples of how faith prevailed in the Old Testament, all throughout Hebrews chapter 11, the writer tells us how to secure that faith with witnesses. Many of you will be familiar with this chapter, and you will have read this paragraph. But unless you apply it to the entire rest of the scroll, this paragraph has very little value. This is the paragraph that ties everything together. The seal that binds us under the blood of Jesus Christ. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. We have sins that cling to us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set aside, was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners in such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, listen to that. It doesn't say sins won't plague you. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are our witnesses. We no longer need to be burdened with the, the sin that plagues us daily. None of us have endured our sin until we have died for it. Only Christ has been able to achieve this. We sin daily. We're unworthy. But we are not to be burdened down with the weight of sin. The weight that the writer says clings to us. Hebrews is an awesome book. If you've been bound by the legalistic, works-righteous faith of today, read it. Understand it. Believe it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that Christ has taken away our sins. Our new high priest has given his own life so that we can be part of his body. Now we can strive to be more like him, not worrying about our shortcomings. Spread it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ.